Welcome to the Little Red Podcast, which brings you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. I'm Grant Smith from the Australian National University's Department of Pacific Affairs, and I'm joined by my co-host Louisa Lin, former China correspondent for the BBC and NPR, now at the Centre for Advancing Journalism at Melbourne University. We're on air thanks to support from the Australian Centre on China in the World. Here are two headlines that sum up China's recent weeks. The first comes from the Japan Times, which wrote, "China celebrated the Lunar New Year like COVID no longer exists." The second is from the BBC, which wrote, "Coffins sell out as rural losses mount." Those two headlines seem to illustrate the cognitive dissonance in looking at China's sudden reversal of its zero COVID policy, and what that means on the ground and in terms of health policy. To try to parse all of this, this month we're joined by Dr. Yenjong Huang, a senior fellow for global health at the Council on Foreign Relations and the author of Governing Health in Contemporary China. We're also joined by Vivian Wu, co-founder of the Mighty Voice Media Studio, who has worked at a host of media organisations, including BBC Chinese and Initium. Vivian, you've tweeted that many of your relatives and friends in Beijing and elsewhere all had Omicron. Can you tell us maybe the view from the ground, what it was like when COVID zero controls were lifted, using your own anecdotal reports from your friends and family? I mean, how widespread do you think COVID infection is? It's just bizarre to find out. Actually,、um, many many people, a great number of people, get infected when the government has just announced that the the zero COVID policy is lifted. Everybody I know. In different cities, from Beijing to Chengdu to Shanghai to Shenzhen to Guangzhou, you name it, everybody has friends or themselves, you know, get sick. It sounds like the COVID zero policy、uh, was released when there's no preparation three years ago, and during three years, everybody was talking about trying to eliminate. The COVID cases, but the the fact is, everybody is very、uh, vulnerable during that in in that bubble, in that bubble without any、um, you know protection or without any、uh, preparation that really get the the population immune, and then the, when the COVID policy was lifted, meaning the social control was removed, the people start to move around and people get infected. For example, in my Uh, in my hometown city, Beijing, all my parents on both sides, four parents in my family, they were infected. Two of them they were tested positive. Two of them had, you know, symptoms. But since we are more educated, we are we are well prepared, so we get the parents, you know, get some medicines and try to just to、uh, stay away from the severe symptoms. And but still, all the extended families, like、uh, my my brother, three of them,、uh, and all my cousins' family, all my uncles, aunties, you name them, they are all sick, and the symptoms are very much like the same. It's like、um, the headache, the fever, coughs.、Um, many of them are worried about lens infe-、um, infection, and the, but none of them actually. Went to the hospital because people are aware that the hospitals are extremely crowded. It's very difficult to get registered, get a chance to see the doctors, and if you go there, actually, it's even easier to get infected and get more,、uh, you know, more symptoms. So people chose to stay at home. 
Yan Zheng, the chief epidemiologist at the China Center for Disease Control and, and Prevention, said he believed 80% of the country had been infected. I mean, what do you make of those figures? Can they be true? I think, yeah, they can be true. And of course, there's incentive for the local authorities to sort of over-report their infection level because you know the, the higher the infection level you know the, it, it means that you are actually ready right for rapid economic recovery right so there's a strong <laughs> incentive for local authorities to over report infection level but in the meantime this is so interesting right there's strong incentive right to under report the covid death you know because even you follow the uh, chief epidemiologist's own estimate, right, on the COVID death rate in China, he made that in December, right, that, that it was about 0.1%, right? So 80% infection, well, that is more than 1.1 billion people, right, get infected. They multiplied by 0.1% case fatality ratio, but you would get more than 1 million deaths, right? The Officially, they only reported thus far, I think uh, the most recent data was like 80,000, right? That would be the world's lowest case fatality ratio, you know? So, so certainly, well, if that is the case, China could still claim, right? They won the second time. Unprecedented in the history of public health in that, you know, within like weeks, right, that you have the, such a high percentage of people infected. Because remember the U.S., it took them three years to achieve more than 90% of the population infected, right? So like COVID infection figures are like the new grain harvest, right? <laughs> well, in a way, it was like, especially when you talk about right, infections, by right, the uh, mortality level, this is all also in a way being uh, politicized, right? Yeah, one thing I want to mention that uh, is uh, the reporting from China, inside China, always goes to uh, two extremes. During three years of COVID control, uh, it sounds like every single case in every city matters so much. And it, it, it triggers another wave of, uh, you know, tightened control. Every time there's an outbreak in the city, in the major city, basically the, the local authorities treated that single cases Sometimes it's just a single digit cases like the, the, the top disaster that the public health system always uh, mobilized to, 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 to fight for. And all of a sudden, right after the zero COVID policy was lifted, sounds like not any single case matter anymore. So they go one extreme to another. It's like in the, in, during the first three years, if you got infected, uh, the, the building, the residence, community, the whole city were immediately shut down. And the, uh, all the levels of the authorities, medical system, you know, medical care forces, they were mobilized to fight for uh, just a combat like a political enemy. Everything is so politicalized, but the only thing that is not mobilized actually is a ma a medical care uh, for all itself. And right after the COVID policy, uh, zero COVID policy was was removed. Sounds like not a single case should be counted. And if you do have the symptoms, you do got sick. Uh, it's not sickness. It's it's nothing to do with COVID. It must be something else. And it's not that serious. As uh, as uh, Dr. Huang has mentioned, 
best cases are always so strictly controlled and uh, you know hushed about and uh, become a taboo because it's like China tries so much and so hard to maintain some, some faith, maintain some reason for so-called victory. If they cannot claim a comprehensive victory over the COVID control, at least they say they are still having you know, the least number of death cases. I mean, Yenzhong, is, is there kind of a financial incentive for, for over-reporting? I mean, because this is, you know, as you know, local governments love things that bring them resources and bring them personnel. Um, is, is that part of it? Oh, I think uh, this more has to do with this agenda change shift, right? Uh, the, uh, the local governments, this is what we saw, right, the, over the past uh, weeks, right? The, you know, they had seems to have no problems reporting, right, high infection level. For example, Henan, right, the last month, proud of it. it seems to be like proud of announced we have like 80% of the population. This is about 88 million people already infected, right? Uh, I think, uh, you, know, you know, and if you uh, recall, but recently, right, in Guangzhou, Guangdong, they just uh, held, uh, you know, a meeting with, 25,000 participants, including local officials, you know, and business leaders, you know, they were talking about how to achieve, right, the high, right, growth rate, you know, every right, local lead, uh, government leader was pledging, you know, they were going to achieve at least a 6% growth rate. So, you know, this also happened, it seems to be in other localities. So clearly there's agenda shift, right, from controlling COVID to, uh, um, achieve rapid economic growth. In fact, in the Guangdong meeting, they didn't even mention COVID at all, right? So they want to leave this chapter behind, right? So, but in order to achieve rapid economic recovery, you got to, right, you know, say you're ready, right? You don't want absenteeism to be a problem, right? To, uh, to be a hurdle, right? In uh, economic rebound, you know? So the more people got infected, you know, that means you, um, the more likely, right, that you're ready, right, that you are for economic recovery. That, you know, it's it's like, you know, 80% people infected means you are achieving some kind of, you know, herd immunity, right? The people are infected, they're recovered, they don't need to worry about at least for the coming three to six months of being reinfected, right? You know, it looks like the virus, you know, just magically disappeared, right, in China. And of course, it has not disappeared, right? It's just that people, you know, now learn to coexist with the virus, they no longer thought that was such a big deal, right? Unlike the zero COVID year or even one single case would immediately trigger mass PCR testing, quarantine, right? The lockdowns, right? Uh, uh, so, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, this is the uh, very interesting uh, uh, new development, you know, that <laughs> when I was reading uh, what the Hu Xijing, right, the, the former chief editor of the nationalist tabloid, right, Global Times said, it's like a God bless China. This is he was like close to say, you know. <laughs> so I'm, I'm curious for both of you to Talk a little bit about what you think the major factors were behind that U-turn on December the 7th, where zero COVID was basically uh, reversed. I mean, how much of it is economics? How much of it is politics, including those 
protests that we saw all over China and how much of it is health policy that they simply couldn't control COVID anymore, so they just had to lift it. Well, I think this is certainly this is a confluence of factors, but even before right, they uh, started officially changing the policy, right, it was clear Right, the zero COVID was no longer sustainable. Right, there was rising, rapidly rising social economic cost. Right, the uh, the economy was close to be derailed. Right, because of this, it was zero COVID policy, and also because of the crackdown, you know, on like uh, real estate, technology, and other sectors. There was also diminishing returns problem. Right, this zero COVID policy, you know, until I think. Uh, uh, the end of 2021, it seems to be able to contain the rapid spread of the virus, you know, within a relatively short period of time, usually like one month or so. But, you know, after the arrival of the Omicron variant, it seems that they're increasingly finding it difficult to contain the virus spread. I even suspected that in places that they announced the uh, so-called societal zero COVID being achieved, they were unable to cut the local transmission chain. You know, in places like Urumuchi, clearly, you know, before they lifted this, the, uh, the zero COVID measures, it was under the social protest where they just said, oh, we already achieved that. But, you know, after it was the reality was that after more than three months, they were unable to achieve zero COVID. It might also explain the why, you know, we saw in places like Gansu, right, that the, the, they had the highest, one of the highest infection rate when the zero COVID was, measures were lifted. So again, I suspect that they were never able to contain the spread of the virus. You know, this is due to that diminishing returns problem of zero COVID. But, uh, you know, certainly what sparked the change was this, you know, social protest, right? The, the attended by those young people, you know, nicknamed the Tangfei, right? The, the, uh, those supporters of uh, the uh, living with the virus, you know, so because uh, uh, that social protest clearly explained the timing of the policy shift because until November uh, uh, 29th, the People's Daily was still talking about right, sticking to a zero COVID. But uh, on November 30th, the, the China's COVID czar Sun Quanlan started talk about the new situation and new tasks. But uh, you know, I want to also point it out that uh, when we talk about decision for the policy shift, actually we're talking about two decisions, right? The first is decision on November 30th, they want to shift away from zero COVID. But even at that time, Sun Chen Lan uh, uh, implied, you know, the, the shift would be gradual, would be incremental, right? In her, her words, 小步快走, right? The, the little step. Uh, but, uh, you know, the real, uh, I think the second decision that came on December 7th, that clearly right, suggested they want abrupt a policy U-turn. You know, I think, you know, that it would be very interesting to, fi to find out what exactly happened in that one week period of time. I very much agree with all the factors uh, you guys have mentioned. I think the first reason is really um, after three years of strict uh, control over society, the whole uh, society, especially the medical system and all the local uh, authorities, different levels of local authorities, they were exhausted. I mean, materially and liberally. We know um, in different levels, the governance and the uh, departmental uh, on the operation work basically have been halfway paralyzed 
all the works, all the operations, all the other work, uh, you know, uh, governmental functions have all given way to so-called COVID control. And it's been exhausting and uh, it's, uh, it's never end. It's never ending. On one side, the society has been uh, halfway paralyzed. You see, the society has come to this status like uh, nothing matters except the COVID uh, policy and the zero COVID, which becomes like an um, illusionary goal that the whole society has, could never really achieve. But who made that decision? Who set that goal? Xi, Xi Jinping himself. So basically, it's like Xi's will to, you know, to make this zero COVID as his victory becomes the only objective for the society. I believe in different levels of governments and officials, people, as long as you have any rationale or any rational thinking about your job and the functions of the government, you will have second thought. You will have some doubts and complaints. And of course, such complaints and doubts could never be uh, publicly expressed. There's no such chance for any public debate, any public review. Then the whole society has been waiting for some trigger, some strong enough reason to give a stop. But she is the only one. It's always the only one that can say, let's stop it. And I don't think he was, he clearly has said, stop it. That's, that's why we, we're so curious about what has happened, uh, you know, during November 28th to early December, what's really happened. But one thing I'm pretty sure, such stop or pause message has to come from Xi himself. And then what has triggered that, I believe, is a protest. One hard evidence uh, showed that Xi Jinping himself was aware of this protest was as a report by SMP and I, I believe his SMP he confirmed to the EU chairman when the guy was visiting China uh, that's the first time that the press and that the whole world heard that actually Xi Jinping mentioned the protest he said okay quote unquote students have expressed some complaints over the COVID policy so that means he recognized that he has heard of complaints, but he doesn't, I, I remember if I remember correctly, he didn't mention protest. Okay, I believe, I doubted, I have tried to figure out, but nobody could really give an answer, is how could, who has submitted such report to him and put this document on his desk and say, hey, uh, President Xi, there are students, uh, you know, protesting on the streets and saying no to your policy. That's a direct trigger, and, and uh, I, I believe somebody has done so. It's like he somehow heard it, and this is such an important. I think it's a it's a massive strike to his self esteem and self confidence. I don't, but I don't think he has given any reflection to, uh, you know, rationale or how mistaken this policy has been. But he, one thing is clear, that's a big strike to his self-confidence. Now, Vivian, one thing I'm curious to get your thoughts on is is, is the cost of this U-turn, which, which you've called insane and you've, you've accused health departments of effectively lying flat and, and, and not doing their job. I mean, how, how widespread do you think your um, thoughts or your opinions on this are, are amongst Chinese people? Like, is that how people are perceiving the U-turn or have they moved on already? 
depends who you talk to. People's opinion is so diverse, and of course, people, our friends uh, among us, uh, you know, my friends, of course, most of them are more uh, free-minded. Uh, they are more aware and cautious of public news uh, and the debates on the public if issues. If you talk to people like this, liberal-minded people, more uh, sensitive to outside discussion, they definitely know the U-turn is nothing to do with victory. Uh, but uh, people just uh, give a deep breath, like, oh my God, it's, it's, fin it's finished. Give me a break. Give me a break. I think everybody now is, needs a break. Exhausting, because if you don't live in that country, if you don't live in that suffocating setting, you won't understand how exhausting it has been. But uh, among the general public, I would say, also everybody's happy that finally life could be back. And the people are expecting that life could be back to normality. Then people are very disappointed to find the restaurants still don't have business. Uh, shopping malls are still empty. And I was told that all the factories and businesses, they, were, they have been waiting for orders. And now they are, uh, for the first year, uh, the, the, the factories in the coastal area, especially, they, they first worry about the people will get infected. Then second year, they worry about the workers. They have to pay for uh, worker salaries, even, even though they don't have any orders. Uh, now they worry about, even though the workers are back and the COVID policy uh, was lifted and still there are no business. So economic concern is the biggest concern for the for, for majority of the people. People are waiting for uh, return of the business, but how fast that U10 could lead to normality, I think is much slower than people hope for. Yenjong, did you want to add something? I saw that you looked like you wanted to chime in before. Yeah, I, I totally agree with Vivian, you know, that, uh, you know, this decision got to come from the very top, right? Uh, you know, abandoning uh, zero COVID, you know. I think both decision, right, A, the decision on November 30th, right, to uh, move away from zero COVID and the decision, right, to have a policy U-turn, right, on December 7th. Uh, I think I do, even though I don't know what exactly, right, drove, you know, President Xi to make this decision, but I could sort of rationalize, you know, his thinking, you know, uh, especially if you consider that before this rapid policy shift, and they will start, you know, public public health experts started to talk about, you know, how, you know, the mild the virus was, right? They said ninety percent of the cases, you know, like uh, were asymptomatic. You know, they, it was really no big deal. And certainly, this is the you know major shift, right, from this initial narrative that highlighted the danger of the variant. I think he might have figure out, you know, that even though, right, this is the abrupt reopening, right, uh, you know, you have, you know, all the people in China infected, 90% of them were going to be asymptomatic, you know, that was not going to be a big deal at all, right? Uh, and secondly, I, I think he also figured out that it was a good timing 
for China to make the uh, may, uh, the the rapid policy shift because it was going to be uh, during the Lunar New Year. You know, this is a public holiday. You know, so the impact of the economy would be minimalized. And in the meantime, right, uh, if uh, having you know such a large percent of people right infected recovered in such a short period of time, that is, you know, before the winter, this the uh, this Lunar New Year was, uh, this period was over. You know, most of the population already right infected. You know, they recovered. They're ready, right, for rapid economic recovery, right? They, uh, uh, that is what's happening now, right, in uh, February. Uh, so I, I think this could, uh, that we, indeed, we can rationalize that decision-making. It's not uh, like entirely, right, the, uh, unreasonable, you know, irrational, uh, as some people think, you know. But uh, um, I think in terms also the public's response, I think it, it depends on when you talk about it, right? Certainly, right, in the beginning stage of the reopening, right? The, uh, I found that the, those, you know, whether you're favoring or uh, opposing zero COVID, you are unhappy, right? Because those who are favoring, right, the policy uh, shift, right, they were unhappy, but there was no preparation, right? Uh, you know, no stockpiling of, you know, fever medicine, you know, no enough vaccination on the elderly, right? No preparation for the antiviral drugs, Right. And for those who uh, were supportive of zero COVID, of course, they were very scared, right? Because they suddenly, right, the government no longer protected them, right? So there were, you know, there's the, uh, I think, uh, you know, basically whether you were for or against the zero COVID, they were unhappy in the beginning, right? Especially when we talk about in December. But now I feel like, you know, like uh, even for those uh, you know, who are unhappy with the, the abrupt policy shift seems to make peace with the, uh, that policy shift, right? And now people joked that uh, those who were saying all these nasty things about the people who, you know, the support the reopening, now they seems to enjoy the moment of peace, right? That they, uh, now they're watching movie, right, in the theater now. Uh, so it, uh, this is, uh, I think there's indeed also a shift in the public mood now. And I mean, it seemed to me that also those feelings of fear and anxiety were really kind of emphasized by some of the footage that was emerging from China. You know, so we saw all these bloggers and people going to hospitals, overflowing corridors, you know, no medicine, no oxygen. And things look really bad. But, you know, thinking about it, all of that footage was from urban areas. Yenzhong, I'm wondering... What do we know about COVID's impact in rural areas where there are more elderly people and probably hospitals are even less well prepared? Do we have any idea of what's going on there? Yeah, this is very interesting because if you compare the, the time of the arrival of the viral wave, right, it almost right arrived at the same time when they arrive in the urban areas. You know, we saw indeed, you know, uh, a large percentage of the population there quickly you know, infected even before right the Lunar New Year travel ra- uh, rush you know started. So sometimes you're wondering what happened. You know this is also this is puzzling. You know that, uh, but I, I think interestingly, right in many places this has not led to any visible collapse. Right of the rural healthcare system, even though we know the rural health system is very fragile, right, They're plagued by all the problem of you know, cost, access, quality, right, 
high insurance coverage, right, the level, but the, the benefit level is really, right, no com- comparable with the uh, uh, urban areas. But, uh, you know, I, I found uh, in many localities, it seems that the people, they uh, find a way to cope with the pandemic, you know, a way that is very different from uh, the urban areas. In some localities, you know, the uh, Chinese media talk about, you know, people refuse to explicitly talk you know, about COVID, you know, because of the stigmatization of the disease. You know, even though you got sick, you would not mention it. You know, that's, that's just uh, referred to as that disease, right? The, uh, um, and uh, when you got sick in many localities, you would not get tested for COVID because people just said, well, if I got infected, does it really make sense to get tested that, uh, you know, I'm infected? You know, so uh, in many of the places we found people got infected, some died, you know, without even getting uh, tested for COVID. You know, so a lot of those people right, who died you know, at home, you know, uh, were not included in official statistics there. But in the meantime, you also have people, right, this is, again, uh, consistent with, uh, with our uh, um, findings, you know, on the uh, effectiveness of Chinese healthcare reform that started, uh, launched in 2009, is that this cost issue continued to discourage people from using the healthcare services there, right? So, you know, like uh, those elderly people, you know, they got sick, you know, they would uh, not go to the hospital. You know, they said was they don't want to spend their children's money. There's also this fatalist, you know, thinking, right, that, that you already feel already 80 or not, uh, higher. You feel it's your time. It doesn't really matter, right, that, that you uh, you don't want to basically you know, spend your children's money to treat a you know, disease. It's like uh, what some people said, you know, when you died over 80, it's like happy morning, you know, like xi san in Chinese, you know. So it's that kind of fatalist thinking. You don't treat the death, you know, life so seriously, well, that uh, also leads to the underutilization of the healthcare services in the countryside. So it was like, uh, paradoxically, right, the weakness of the system actually become the strength, right, that uh, make the system more resilient, right, in coping with COVID. I don't know whether this is like a cynical way of, you know, (laughs) noting that. It's a tiny, it's it's a tiny bit cynical, but look, you you probably earned the right to, to to be that, given you look at China's public health system. But a question for you both, because because the party self image of itself is is a, a learning party, you know, um, you know, a party that learns from its mistakes in theory and changes things. Is there any talk within the party of a major reform to the public health system on the back of what's happened? over the last three years? Like, are there, are there signs of, of learning going on, if you like? Yeah, absolutely, right? Especially after the end of the, the Wuhan outbreak, we talk about the, the uh, spring 2020, right? Uh, when, after China lifted the, the lockdown in Wuhan, there was a time, you know, talking about, right, the drawing lessons from the outbreak, fixing the loopholes in the, country, the healthcare system, uh, the, there were even like uh, the uh, research projects you know, being launched right, to do a comprehensive you know, review of the healthcare system. Uh, but, but in the meantime, even there, at that time, you know, there was you know, this 
discussion on the like uh, the political institutional roots of the problem remain a taboo area and of course now it's totally even more it's totally different now right because you know with that the shifting by right, the policy priority right from uh, controlling covid to rapid economic growth there seems to be little discussion on how you know this how what we can learn by right, what lessons can we draw you know from you know this mishandling of the crisis crisis, you know, that should we do something, you know, to, you know, uh, strengthen, right, the, the healthcare system, you know, to build a surge capacity. But it is the, the problem is, is that in the absence of any fundamental changes, right, the political institutions, right, uh, in terms of the concentration of political power, in terms of the perverse state society relationship, which we know is precisely behind all those, right, this, this, problems right the uh, uh associated with zero con- uh, covid and then the uh, abrupt policy u turn so it's the, you know that the, the, it's very likely why right, china will face the similar challenges in dealing with the next outbreak you know i wouldn't say even worse that that, that the tragic in the past it could be right uh, re- repeated in the future i i'm also actually quite glad that you you mentioned uh the medical reform the one thing, there's a lot of debates about, a lot of discussions. Uh, very simple. It's a why the Chinese medical system wouldn't take on, you know, vaccination from a, a Pfizer or, you know, a lot of debates on that. And even in the Chinese domestic society, there was debate. Uh, there was discussion. And the, I think it's a, it's a very complicated issue, but I, I want to hear more about this. It's like, there seems to be a, ongoing debate, there's no solution about the Chinese medical insurance and the medical care system. It's like, if we look at how China was trying to adopt different models of medical insurance system, we, we find actually they, they were trying to uh, first adopt uh, uh, FDA system, American system, which is an insurance uh, market economy based. And then they try to, and they, they turned out it's impossible. Then they start to learn from an English uh, system, which is very much community based, community supporting system. and. Uh, and we see that the world has suffered, different countries have also learned how to deal with COVID and get people jabbed, get people vaccines. It's just so sad and so strange. It's like China seems to learn nothing from SARS to COVID. And the public health system showed to be so vulnerable and uh, still there's no solution for the ongoing pandemic which is still taking place in that country we just find you know people take it for granted okay this is just a small minor disease and uh, and then but still people are dying and then when we talk about the death cases then they refer to american uh case scenario say ah you also have a lot of people died the sad fact which i want to mentioned here is still is still ongoing people are still dying and these people are still unable to get sufficient medical support so basically you, you basically rely on your own luck or your gen- generic capacity or your own body immune system to deal with the covid and china has done nothing really to learn from SARS to covid this is sad and uh, i just want to stress it because 
is still going on. People are still dying. People are still get sick. And I don't believe the country will get so quickly immune, get a hurdle immune, and it's over. It's not over. It seems you're arguing almost that um, in order to learn from your mistakes, you first have to admit that you've actually made a mistake in the first place. I mean, Vivian, what, what are your thoughts on this? I would say when you say learning party, it depends on also there's an issue what they've learned for what purpose, right? If the party has been continuously learning how to be a more powerful, uh, you know, more, you know, more sophisticated party, how to better rule the society, rather better serve the people, I don't think it's a good thing. The consequence is disastrous, right? Uh, and that's, uh, unfortunately, that's the case. In order to learn, you have to admit one thing, I'm ignorant. I don't know everything. I'm not capable of doing anything. I have mistakes. And then secondly, you should listen to people to express their complaints and their real opinions about your mistakes. And then you say, I should correct my mistakes and I would do better job if next time such you know pandemic outbreak takes place. And uh, what we've seen is there's a zero chance for such open discussion. There's first, there's no accurate data. So if you don't even know how many people have suffered or have died out of this disease, how could you say the medical system have learned something or the people, you know, all the stakeholders have got a lesson, you know? Uh, uh, secondly, uh, if you don't, you have never ever given chance to, you know, criticism and you never even admit that you have made mistakes, you're always right. You. Uh, when you have zero COVID policy, you're right, because China is the fast, fastest to shut down cities, shut down lo policy, lockdown policies, right. And then you say, now it's a U-turn, everything is uh, it's a victory. We are also right. There's a joke in Chinese, you say, you're always right, you're always right, right? If that's the attitude, how could you say you're learning? You're basically dodging, uh, hiding, uh, staying away rather than learning. And third point is what we've seen that um, if we, we, we look at what is the government, the authorities uh, have learned, I think we need to distinguish medical experts from those bureaucrats and the officials uh, working on this COVID policy you know, implementation. I, I believe medical experts, doctors, at different levels, they've actually learned a lot. They actually, uh, you know, uh, achieve much better understanding of the virus, uh, the treatment, and the just mentioned just now we, we mentioned, uh, uh, you know, the rural areas, uh, elders and uh, farmers, peasants in general, they take a vast, uh, they, they they took on a passive, uh, passive response. Uh, one is because the people's life have always been uh, treated less carefully, you know, more carelessly. Um, the second one is many of, many of the sick, many of the infected people actually have the minor symptoms. And we already have the knowledge, even some act, uh, doctors have, you know, Zhang Wenhong and some doctors already repeatedly suggest to the public, don't be panicked, don't rush to the hospitals to overrun the, the resources. You can simply stay at home just to take some vet, vet, you know, rest and take water. That's actually a useful functional treatment. And doctors, 
at different levels, they already try to convey the message. You should be honest with the symptoms. Don't panic. They've learned a lot of you know uh, ways to to help with the public, but. When such honest suggestions and instructions from doctors are not allowed because of the political reasons, people are actually, the public is not educated. Public has learned so little. If you compare with the majority of the, the population in the world, in other countries, there are already a set of treatment and you know, uh, medical instruction available, but the public has never got a chance to learn as the world is learning. Um, Vivian, I wanted to follow up. I mean, you you were talking about how the government has learned to perfect its control over the population. And I just wanted to quickly follow up with you on that. And what has happened to those protesters who came out on the streets and protested against zero COVID? I, people, I think, are calling it the A4 revolution or the A4 movement. I mean, what can we tell about the government's attitude from the way in which these people have been treated? Okay. Uh, the government has also learned how to silence people and also how to uh, surveillance uh, and hush up people through health code, you know, through this mobile-based uh, monitoring apps. Uh, for three years, uh, the government has developed such comprehensive, sophisticated system of surveillance and social control. They don't even need to allocate police onto the streets anymore. They can just face ID, you know, just face monitoring you. And, uh, and this tracking system, in every city, people can, uh, the system could track on people's behaviors and movements uh, minute by minute. This is such a, a you know, fast learning for the curve for the government to better control the society. On the other hand, what we see is a big surprise when they find people made to, took the streets and publicly loudly shouted out those slogans, right? So how they treated those people? I think one, two things. One is the police officers based on uh, this is social control policy. They've already come up to, uh, they, they've already come to this very confident uh, mindset. They think the society is under control. You see all those police officers in the footage. You see they are they're shocked. I think it's because they they couldn't believe people could take such actions. Then very quickly they use their uh, surveillance and monitoring investigation system, which is already in place. Uh, what I know is that there has been sweeping investigation in all the cities that you see the protests and it's still going on. It's very much exactly the same like what we've seen after, you know, June 4th, massacre and the protests and there is a purge and the thorough investigation. And the authorities wanted to find out how students organize themselves how they communicate among themselves, how could they come up with such gatherings, and who developed the slogans, who are the leaders, uh, in the want to stop the information sharing, and then say, uh, in order to control the impact of those protests, you know, in the extended level of, in society. And then secondly, they find, to find the organizers and the leaders. And then they definitely don't want all those things repeat again. They also learn that young people are dangerous. <laughs> 
And we will see. We will see how they further control the campus movements. There was one case、uh, made to the news.、Um, there was an on-campus、uh, kind of online network, you know, very small,、uh, small-scale、uh, app or some kind of device, you know, just an app or BBS kind of communication tool, and、uh, it was handed over to the. To the university authorities, even though it's a it's an extremely small scale and the students self-organizing tool, or just a hub or portal hub, but it was handed over to the authority. Even though the university authorities in Xinhua and Beida, they they have promised to students no revenge,、um, you know, no qiuhou sanzhang, you know, nobody will be taking、uh, consequence, but it's it's taking place. So they will further take over. Such self mobilization and the organizing tools, either is online or offline. We'll see. And and Yanzhong, a final question for you. I mean, when I've been watching、um, how the party responds to this crisis,、um, it seems they they go for campaign mode. Whether it's the campaign for zero COVID, the campaign to force through the U-turn. I mean, what do you see looking down the line as as the next campaign? What is what is the party going to、uh, campaign on next now that it's infected everyone? <laughs> Well, yeah, that's, that's a great question. It was very interesting, right? That, that despite right that that、um, those the、uh, introduction of high technologies in the policy implementation, and despite right this 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 you know that from Deng Xiaoping in the early nineteen eighties, you know, started talking about you know. Democratic decision making, scientific decision making. You know this when you when we talk about the main mode of policy implementation, it remains right campaign based. It remains right that, that mobilization. All right, this is the. Uh, uh, I think this is consistent with this.、Um, This 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 the、um, party ideology right of、uh, continuing revolution. All right, the, the stru- we call the stru-、uh, philosophy of struggle, right? That they do in Zhuxie, right? That, that、uh, I think this is the way to re-、uh, maintain the vitality of the, the Communist Party members, you know. So uh, the uh, in a way, the stability, right? Is the uh, more the uh, the exception <laughs> rather than the rule, right? So you know that this、uh, is why some people. Say why、right, the four decades of economic reform and open up、uh, is really sort of a deviation, right?、Uh, in the uh, the the the、uh, the PRC、uh, history, right? So、uh, you know we we can expect right in the coming、uh, de- years that there will be you know some.、Uh, Like a normalization, right? The, the、uh, process, right? The e- economy, business will be back to you know, uh, uh, you know, certain normalcy, right? People's life will be back to certain normalcy, you know. But、uh, you know that as long as that、uh, you know. Struggle philosophy is in place. We know that People's Daily just recently, right, made it clear that is the you know that something that the communist party members should also keep in mind, right? This fight against nature, you know, fight against human beings, right? The in Chairman Mao's words is like they always enjoy the boundless, right? Have this boundless joy, right? Fighting with the human nature. 
uh, with nature and human beings, you know. So this is just, uh, you know, we don't know when, right, this is like going to be another campaign, but uh, certainly, right, that this, the, uh, this history will be, uh, you know, uh, very likely <laughs> repeated in the future, right? That's a good place to sign off. Yenjong, Vivian, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the Little Red Podcast, bringing you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. Many thanks to our guests, Yenjong Hong and Vivian Wu, and to my co-host, Louisa Lim. We're on air thanks to support from the Australian Centre on China and the World. Our editing is by Andy Hazel, background research by Wing Kwong, our music is by Susie Wilkins, and our cartoons and gifts are courtesy of Seb Danta. Bye for now.